Chapter six of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty five, a forecast written in the year seventeen sixty three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six, AD nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty. War renewed, siege and relief of Orleans, the king wounded, Battle of Arlo, Battle of Alençon, Death of King Charles, George re enters Paris leaves france and returns to england the king of england who thought he had done nothing while he had anything to do was soon in france his troops having enjoyed every necessary refreshment were collected very early in the spring and rendezvoused in the neighbourhood of paris charles on his side did everything that industry artifice or bravery could effect to retrieve the terrible condition of his affairs he had applied to the court of madrid for succours and had met with success the king of Spain furnished him with money, and by his great vigilance he had collected his army as soon as his enemy. George opened the campaign by besieging Orléans, a city of the greatest importance, and Charles determined to attempt relieving it. He formed a scheme for surprising the king in his entrenchments. One dark night, about twelve o'clock, he advanced with near thirty thousand men through a hollow way which led to the king's lines. By some well-conducted motions he cut off the advanced guards, and knocking down several sentinels made a vigorous attack on the English entrenchments. The troops, unprepared for action, ran hastily to their arms. The king flew to the quarter where Charles made his attack, and found General Shipton at the head of four regiments which were by that time half-formed, sustaining the vigorous efforts of the French. He rallied and formed his men as fast as possible, but with all the coolness imaginable. No effort was left untried by our young monarch to repulse the enemy. He drove them back twice, but still they renewed the attack. At last George, unfortunately, was wounded in the side by a musket-ball, and carried off the field. No other stroke could be half so despairing to his troops. They gave way almost immediately, but yet the Earl of Berry retired with tolerable good order. The English commanders greatly distinguished themselves in this action particularly the earl who conducted the retreat. Footnote. May 7, 1919. End footnote. Charles fought with the greatest bravery and led on his troops with the most heroic firmness. He showed equal conduct and courage in the scheming and executing his plan. He revived by this action the spirits of his whole kingdom. It was indeed no inconsiderable honor to triumph over the king of England though the wound that young hero received was Charles' best friend. But the victory greatly raised his reputation. The English were obliged to raise the siege immediately, and the king was carried to Mayenne. His wound was not dangerous, but was not likely to be healed soon. Nothing could exceed the sorrow of the whole army at this unhappy accident. They loved the king as a father, and never fought under him but with an eager certainty of victory. All his dominions wept on receiving the news, and offered up the most fervent prayers to heaven for his recovery. The Duke of Devonshire commanded a small army in Paris, and hearing of the King's defeat was at some difficulty to know how to proceed. Charles was on the full march to his capital, and his troops were too few to oppose him, yet he could not quit the city without orders. However, he soon received them from the King to join the troops under the Earl of Berry. It was with some difficulty that he effected this, for Charles was bent on making him and his whole army prisoners. But slipping by him he made three forced marches and joined the royal army, 
of which he then took the command. Touraine, Berry, Nivernois, the Isle of France, Champagne, and part of Normandy were soon overrun by the French troops. Charles found his army was increased to near two hundred thousand men in high spirits at his late victory. But what chiefly increased his reputation was the possession of Paris. Flushed at the fair appearance his affairs wore, he thought of giving battle to the Duke of Devonshire before George was well enough to command in person. His generals, indeed, all advised him against the scheme, and represented to him that the English army would decrease every day, that his subjects were so inspirited with his late success, that they would rise against his enemies wherever they still possessed the command, but that in hazarding a battle he put all his advantages to the stake at once, and at a time when defeat must be attended with the most fatal consequences. These representations had little effect on Charles. Impatient for a complete victory, he collected one hundred and twenty thousand men, and at the head of that vast army began his march to attack the English. The king had been some days removed to Caen, when he was informed of the motions of Charles. He sent immediate orders to the Duke of Devonshire to fortify himself in the strongest manner, and to choose the best situation for a camp for that purpose. His grace obeyed the command without delay and fixed on an admirable situation at Conlee. Footnote. Oddly enough, Conlee was to see a great camp in the nineteenth century. It was the place chosen for the mobilization of the Breton Guard Mobile in the autumn of 1870 during the Franco-German War. In footnote. He soon rendered his camp impregnable, and was at the same time able to receive all sorts of supplies from the country behind him. The Earl of Berry, with eight thousand men, was at Alençon, and General Villiers, with ten thousand, at Rennes, so that the three armies formed a line which perfectly secured them. On the 3rd of June, footnote, 1919, footnote, Charles arrived in sight of the English camp, but was surprised to find out how admirably everything was disposed for his reception. He found it was impossible to attack the Duke with the least prospect of success. He assaulted several of his posts, but always met such a reception as convinced him that nothing could be effected. He turned off towards Paris after this ineffectual march, and laid siege to Chartres, a strong fortress and nearer to the capital than any other in the hands of the English. The King of France had hardly undertaken the siege before he had intelligence of an event which both obliged him to raise it and gave him great uneasiness. General Summers had commanded an army of twenty thousand English in Flanders from the opening of the war. Charles had lately detached the Marquis de Senetraire at the head of forty thousand men to give him battle, or prevent his joining the Duke of Devonshire, as he had made some motions which indicated a design to undertake that dangerous expedition. Senetraire, with all the rashness of a young soldier, for he was but twenty-two, attacked Summers in his strong entrenchments and after a sharp engagement was totally defeated. The English general made the best use of so fortunate an affair. The battle was fought near Arlot, and quitting the field he made a flying march with his victorious troops to Amiens. From thence he fled toward Rouen, when the King of France, being alarmed at the celerity of his marches, determined to raise the siege of Chartres, and hastened himself to meet him. George, whose wound now began to heal, was in pain for his brave general, and finding himself pretty well recovered, resolved to place himself at the head of his army. He was advised against it by his surgeons, but in vain. 
the impetuosity of his courage could not be stopped, and he arrived at the camp the twenty-ninth of June. He immediately drew his forces out of their entrenchments, and calling in the detachments commanded by the Earl of Berry and General Villiers, he again found himself at the head of a gallant army of seventy thousand men in good spirits, and who longed to wipe off their late disgrace. Charles had marched to Bretoul to intercept Summers, and he had stationed his troops in so judicious a manner that the Englishmen could not pass him. The King of England, having drawn in all his scattered troops, moved toward the French King, who prepared to receive him in the most vigorous manner. It was plainly foreseen that a general engagement must quickly ensue, for Charles drew up his army to the amount of one hundred and twenty thousand men in order of battle on the plains of Alençon. George came in sight of him the fourth of July, and prepared that night to give him battle. The French army was posted in the most advantageous manner. In their front was a rivulet, behind which were nine redoubts mounted with cannon. Their wings were defended in the same manner, and every approach guarded with artillery. The king, having reconnoitred the enemy's position, drew up his troops on the same plain at some distance in their front. As the French army outspread his, he disposed his cannon in his wings in such a manner as to prevent his being surrounded. Himself commanded the centre, the Duke of Devonshire the right, and the Earl of Berry the left. Everything being prepared for the engagement, the king ordered the signal to be made for beginning it, and about nine in the morning that battle began which at once was to decide the fate of two mighty kingdoms. The French army was the most numerous and commanded by their king. The monarch of the English also headed them, and they were eager to engage and obliterate by their bravery the memory of their late defeat. The fire of the artillery was the beginning of this great action. As the British troops advanced under cover of their own cannon, that of the enemy played on them with great fury and some effect. But the skill of the English engineers so well directed their fire that several batteries of the enemy were thrown into confusion. The king, however, soon brought on warmer work. At the head of the first line of his centre he began the attack which was received with firmness. The Earl of Berry at the same time with the left fell on the right of the French. For about an hour the success of the day was doubtful, but the right of the English army then beginning the attack threw the French into a little confusion. Charles, however, flying with great celerity from his centre, repulsed the Duke of Devonshire and attacked him in his turn, drawing off a part of his centre to sustain his left. The Duke repelled his attack, but it was renewed with such vigour that he found it necessary to send an aide-de-camp to the King for assistance. George drew twenty battalions from his centre, and all his horse from his left. This was a most masterfully and rapid motion. Just as the Duke was thinking of a retreat, the King came up at the head of his fresh troops. The field of battle was now almost changed. The French had been so often repulsed in their attacks that it was even dangerous to pursue their advantage after the great loss they had suffered. But Charles, contrary to the advice of his generals, renewed his attack after George was arrived. The French troops, fatigued with fighting almost three hours in a hot day, made but a faint impression. The king easily repulsed them, and placing himself at the head of his cavalry, made a most furious attack on his almost defeated enemies. Nothing resisted him. The whole French army was broke through in a moment, and the slaughter that ensued was terrible. While the king burst through every battalion of French with the irresistible fury of his cavalry, General Young brought up sixty pieces of cannon which played on their broken troops near an hour. All the efforts of Charles were in vain. 
the battle was lost beyond the power of recovery and to complete the misfortunes of the french their king as he was endeavouring to rally his men was killed by a cannon-ball the earl of berry with twenty thousand men pursued the flying enemy and made a vast multitude of prisoners never was any battle more critically won the english army was on the point of being defeated which would certainly have been its fate had not the king recovered all by one of the most masterly strokes of generalship recorded in history never was there a braver soldier or a more complete commander both characters he equally displayed in this celebrated battle he received a slight wound in his left arm and had three horses killed under him and during the whole action exposed his person in the hottest fire in killed and wounded he lost seven thousand men but what is remarkable not one officer of great note the french nation never sustained a more terrible blow never one more decisive besides the king they lost thirty-two thousand men killed nine thousand wounded and twelve thousand prisoners in all fifty-three thousand an amazing number among whom were the princes of conde and charleroi of the royal blood the dukes of st omer rochefoucault ventador amiens and d'elu many other nobility of great rank thirteen lieutenant-generals and five major-generals all killed among the prisoners were the dukes of bordeaux rennes st clair doyne the marshal suivione and three major-generals besides many others of rank one hundred and fifty pieces of cannon seventy mortars and all the baggage of the army with drums standards and colours without number being taken but the prodigious consequences of this victory best proved its decisiveness the road was open to paris george at the head of his victorious army took it his detachments overrun the whole province of orleanois even to nevers he himself made a triumphant entry into paris and philip the seventh the new french king hardly reigned in his capital before he was obliged to fly from it all picardy was immediately conquered the english themselves were amazed at the rapidity of their own success montargis Sainte, troyes and auxerre opened their gates to the conqueror the strongest fortresses held out but a few days so universal was the terror which spread over all france they had no prospect of relief king charles who just before the battle of alencon which robbed him of his crown and his life saw himself at the head of two hundred thousand men left a successor who had not even ten thousand about his own person and yet half france was in his possession but the english prosecuted their success with so much vigour that every moment brought him tidings of their conquests the rapidity with which george followed his blow surprised all europe by the beginning of august he was in the entire possession of normandy brittany the whole province of orleanois the isle of france champagne picardy and flanders he had small detachments making important conquests in other provinces the duke of devonshire acted in lorraine the earl of berry in burgundy general Somers in Hainault, and general villiers watched the motions of philip who had retired to lyon thus the english were in possession of near half france these wonderful successes while they called to mind the remote days of edward the third and henry the fifth yet totally eclipsed them and though a very great share of admiration was paid to the names of those celebrated heroes a degree considerably higher attended the name of george the heroic monarch who was at paris found himself much disordered after his late fatigues 
His wound had not received sufficient indulgence to complete a cure, so that his physicians by all means advised him to return for a short time to England, and repose himself after the vast fatigues he had undergone. The king, who found himself very indifferent, followed their advice, and leaving the command in France to the Duke of Devonshire with orders to prosecute the war with the utmost vigour, he left that kingdom and arrived at London the 1st of September, 1919. End of section 8. Recording by Philip Gould.